So this is clearly an escalation, both in terms of the political backing, the weapons used, the location, and it does not augur well for what's going on in Jerusalem. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Evan Gottesman, and you're listening to Access Mundi, the podcast of Terrestrial Jerusalem. Terrestrial Jerusalem is an Israeli organization committed to tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a future two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Look out for a new episode each month as we go beyond the headlines to break down the latest news out of Jerusalem. We are nearly two months removed from Hamas's October 7th attack in southern Israel and the start of the IDF's campaign in Gaza, but it could just as well have been two days ago. The knock-on effects from that dark day are still deeply felt among Israelis and Palestinians, not only in and around Gaza, but in Jerusalem as well. We're going into this program coming off the news of a recent deadly terrorist attack at a bus stop in Givat Shaul at the entrance to West Jerusalem, which, as it happens, was the site of an attack around the same time last year. Hamas has claimed responsibility. But before we break down this tragic incident, I want to welcome to the show Danny Seidemann, an attorney based in Jerusalem and the founder of Terrestrial Jerusalem, and the best person to talk to about these things at such a complicated moment. Danny, in light of everything, or maybe despite everything, how are you holding up? As well as can be expected under the circumstances. That's as good as it gets. That is as good as it gets, and that's the only thing that you can do, right? And I want to talk about that for a moment, actually, um, before we get into the weeds here. On the last episode, you were... You know, we were talking just about the mood of the city, uh, the way people are feeling, the way you're feeling. Um, and what you described was a situation that was almost too quiet. After October 7th, we saw people retreat into their homes and communities, a scene that you were saying is unparalleled in your experience since the first Gulf War over 30 years ago. How does the city feel now, almost two months later? I believe the tensions are more palpable. The extreme expression of that was clearly the terror attack. But um, there are um, manifestations of what I call de facto martial law in East Jerusalem. Our Minister of National Security is cracking down uh, regardless of circumstances. There's an uptick in home demolitions, which is probably the worst thing that one could do if one wanted to maintain some semblance of stability. There are lockdowns periodically, um, seizure of uh, cell phones, targeting of individuals. For example, a demolition order handed down or that was announced this morning to a five-story building in Aswana is home to Sheikh uh, Sabri, the Imam of Al-Aqsa Mosque and the head of the Muslim Council. Now, if you wanted to cause Jerusalem to erupt, and I don't rule out the possibility that is that is Ben-Gur's intent, that's exactly what you'd be doing. Now, this specific demolition order you mentioned came out today. When we talk about the uptick in home demolitions in general, are these mostly new orders or are these standing orders that are now being enforced by uh, Israeli security? There are more than 20,000 or approximately 20,000. I want to be cautious. 
outstanding demolition orders. And these demolition orders never expire. There's no statute of limitations. So you have hundreds of thousands of Palestinians going to sleep at night not knowing whether the bulldozers will be there in the morning. Now, there have never been massive demolitions. And in the past, demolitions were so rare that people would go to sleep saying, no, it's not going to happen to me. Now, with the uptick, uh, there's a general feeling I could be next. Now, there are two things that are noteworthy. The fact that the demolition order was singled out today to the home of Sheikh Asabi, uh, it's hard to believe that that's coincidental. I think that they probably knew that in sending a message, and uh, it's a message to the entire Palestinian community of East Jerusalem. Secondly, the actual numbers of demolitions are not fully revealing because uh, the municipality is now giving notice the families, demolish your home by tomorrow, 48 hours, or we will demolish it for you. If we will demolish it for you, we will also charge you tens of thousands of shekels for the demolition of the home. So there are approximately one self-demolition every day. Self-demolition is when the owner of the house, under a threat of demolition by the municipality, demolishes his own home, only to save the added expense of tens of thousands of shekels. And there, there's been approximately one every day, which is a significant increase in what has been customary in the past. So when you hear about the rise in home demolitions in East Jerusalem in the news, you're not even looking at the number of Palestinians who demolish their own homes in a situation where they wouldn't have otherwise taken down the structure were it not for orders from the uh, municipality. We're looking at both uh, because both of these are contributing tensions uh, to the city when you have an enforced demolition. Of course, you have the event being secured by the police, uh, which automatically makes the situation in the area uh, uh, tenser. But just describing the numbers of demolitions carried out directly by the municipality and secured by the police doesn't give the full picture. With this going on, what's the feeling across the Green Line in the city between Jewish and Palestinian Jerusalemites? I don't think that there's terribly much interaction between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, or let's put it this way, less so than under routine circumstances. Uh, many Palestinians are still staying away from work. Israelis are staying out of Palestinian areas. Don't forget there are 230,000 Israelis living in East Jerusalem, but they're living in the large settlement neighborhoods where there's no immediate interaction. Parallel lives and a a chasm between uh, the two communities, at least in terms of the way they're perceiving one another. Palestinians, I don't believe, understand just how shocked and terrified and horrified we were by the events of October 7th. And we are not, the Israelis are not fully aware, not only of uh, the situation in East Jerusalem, but how they're perceiving the uh, large-scale civilian casualties in Gaza. So there's a chasm of perceptions between the two communities. In spite of that chasm of perceptions, as you put it, there's still something different. As you said, fewer Palestinians uh, going to work and Israelis avoiding uh, Palestinian areas of East Jerusalem. Why is that on both ends? 
fear. It's that simple. Fear, but in each case, fear specifically of what? Well, Israelis uh, tend to stay away from Palestinian areas of East Jerusalem in general, and there are very few exceptions. But when tensions rise, as they do now, even that decreases. So if uh, Shabbat, you would see Israelis going from Pisgat Ve'ev to Beit Hanina to shop, you won't see that now. Or even uh, on the southern part of the city, Surabacha, which we'll speak about shortly, that is not happening. I've been told by quite a number of Palestinian friends that they are afraid to let their kids out alone. And they accompany them to school. And it's not entirely clear what the source of that is. There hasn't been a large number of settler violence in East Jerusalem, much different than the West Bank. However, there is a good deal of police harassment, of uh, summary arrests, detainment, things of that nature. But the atmosphere of, of is one of apprehension that I cannot clearly pin down. We're going to come back to the feeling in East Jerusalem, Surbaher specifically, as you mentioned uh, just before. But now I want to get to this latest attack in Jerusalem. Uh, on Thursday, November 30th, two terrorists shot and killed three Israelis at a bus stop in Givat Shaul, West Jerusalem. A fourth Israeli was killed uh, in this uh, incident and the circumstances of his death uh, merit their own question. But in any case, Hamas claimed responsibility for this attack. But the assailants were brothers from Surbahir in East Jerusalem. What do you make of Hamas taking credit for these killings? Is there something to it, or is it pure opportunism to put their brand on this attack? There's definitely something to it. Uh, It's is a bit of an anomaly. It, on the one hand, is something of a model for integration of Palestinian neighborhoods, at least um, de facto, Boris Vivendi, greater numbers in the uh, Israeli workplace, a, a few prominent um, uh, residents of um, Surbacher having senior positions in the Israeli government. I believe that the re- a resident of Surbacher, who is the deputy chief scientist of the government of Israel, which is a very senior position, was a Palestinian from Surbacha. On the other hand, it is known as a uh, Islamic stronghold, and part of that Islamism is Hamas. And if you drive through the neighborhood, you will see Hamas graffiti on the walls. There will be Palestinian flags, and on occasion, there will be the green flags of Hamas. That doesn't come as a surprise. In addition to that, we had a situation earlier where it was reported that one of the Hamas leaders in Gaza who was killed was a resident of Surbacher, living in Gaza, but came from Surbacher. And the brothers were known as his friend and associate. So those who are familiar with Surbacher and its contradictions are not surprised. And Hamas' claim of responsibility is not hollow. There's a good deal of merit and it's likely to be true. How does this attack then fit into the post-October 7th state of play between Jewish and Palestinian Jerusalemites? Um, this was also, I should add, during the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Until now, violence 
has usually been lone wolf violence without any organizational affiliation. And it has been limited to the seam areas uh, where there's an interface between Palestinian neighborhoods and Israeli neighborhoods. And, and it was vehicular or stabbing or something like that. This is the first time that you have seen venturing out into one of the symbols of West Jerusalem, the, you know, the um, bus stand where hundreds gather on the road out to Tel Aviv. And it was use of automatic weapons, including an M16, which is new. So this is clearly an escalation, both in terms of the political backing, the weapons used, the location, and it does not augur well for what's going on in Jerusalem. And the location of the attack, this was the site of an attack um, just around the same time last year. Is there anything to that? Well, first of all, there are hundreds of people who are standing there every day. It's where either people pick up a bus on the way to Tel Aviv or you know, hitch a ride uh, to Tel Aviv. You will find dozens of people there most of the hours of the day. I think it's been estimated that were several hundreds of thousands of Israelis who stood at that point in any given year, if I remember correctly. So it is a, it's a ripe target. And these things take on a live, life of their own. So it's also a bit of a symbolic place, but it, it's really the, the fact that this is where um, Israelis congregate in significant numbers in a way that's accessible uh, by vehicle. Now there's another story in this attack, uh, which I alluded to just before. Um, three Israelis were killed by the, uh, the two terrorists. A fourth Israeli was killed um, in an incident of uh, friendly fire, although that may be putting it lightly. Um, Israeli soldiers killed an Israeli civilian, Yuval Doron Castleman, who had shot at terrorists with his own gun. The soldier who shot uh, Castleman was a self-proclaimed hilltop youth, the violent West Bank settler hooligans who have found encouragement from far-right elements in this Israeli government. What's the significance of that? It's, it's deeply troubling. Uh, first of all, this shouldn't be viewed in isolation. There has been permissiveness in the open fire orders in the West Bank, even among soldiers. Then a few years ago, we had the tragic uh, killing, some would say murder, of Iyad Khalak, a, a special needs Palestinian young man who posed no threat and was killed by the border police, the border police being exonerated. But there's a special context here. It's not only the growing violence and the inculpability of hilltop use. It's also the you know privatization of weapons. One of the things that has taken place since we last talked was the founding in Jerusalem of one of Ben Gvir's so-called you know uh, um, preparedness squads, which are basically militias. He's been setting them up all over the country, but these are handpicked by him uh, and his staff. There are more than a hundred who have uh, been claimed to be trained almost exclusively, although not entirely exclusively, in the neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. So you now have the law by official sanction being in the hands of uh, private citizens. That worked, by the way, in favor of stopping this attack by you know, the, the hero, Castleman, who, who basically saved the day and paid for it with his life because there was a trigger-happy Israeli extremist 
who lives by the norms of the isolated West Bank where you shoot to kill. And he did that. And there is absolutely no accountability. Uh, Netanyahu's response last night was, well, things like this happen in life. Good grief. It's, it's incredibly disturbing, especially if, if you read about the context of the killing. This wasn't, it didn't, doesn't seem like a fog of war incident. Uh, you have you know, Castleman takes off his jacket, he drops his gun, and he's begging for his life, begging for them not to shoot him, right? It would be one, you know, this isn't the heat of the moment. It's hard to distinguish who, who's who, or, or who's armed, um, or potential threat. Um, so when you add that layer to it, on top of what you've just described, it, it is very disturbing indeed. Add to that the likelihood that this will not be investigated, and if it's investigated, it will not be investigated well. And this is uh, perceived among many people in Israel, I among them, that this is an incident that is troublesome because it is likely the beginning of a much broader phenomenon where individuals are taking law into their own hand, inspired by ultra-nationalist racists like Ben Gvir. Very, very dangerous. We could have an entire conversation about this uh, program that Ben Gvir has created that, that you've discussed, the uh, uh, privatization of security, um, the creation of these preparedness squads, um, and uh, we probably should. But for now, uh, I want to come back to the perpetrators in this attack. Uh, the brothers were from East Jerusalem, uh, from Sir Bahar. And there are reports in Palestinian media that this neighborhood, along with the neighboring Umtuba, uh, have been closed off by Israeli security. What's Israel looking to achieve here? Collective punishment. The, the atmosphere in, in Suba, why are you singling us out? There are two people within the community. They were known as Hamas people. The, uh, they had been in Israeli detention in the past. The Shabak didn't pick them up. Why should the residents, 13,000, 14,000 residents of Tur Bakr and Umtuba, be held responsible? But what we are seeing under the de facto martial law in East Jerusalem is collective punishment becoming the norm rather than the exception. You have arrests of the sisters, mothers, brothers of uh, wanted suspects as a means of pressure to getting themselves to turn them in. Um, that is becoming acceptable police behavior. Given that the situation in East Jerusalem broadly is one you're describing as de facto martial law, what distinguishes the Israeli response in Surbahar and Umtuba uh, since this terrorist attack uh, from the day-to-day -day procedure since October 7th? It's not uh, uncommon to have checkpoints at the entrances or exits from a neighborhood or village. And at the very beginning of the war, large concrete cubes were placed at the entrance, but not sealing them. They were in preparation for a massive lockdown of East Jerusalem. What you don't have is a seal, and that's what we've seen in Umtuba and Sorbacher, where all of the entrances and exits have been shut down except for one or two, and there there are serious police checks. So it's basically a community on lockdown with a safety valve for individuals to get in and out. 
And so with the situation so delicate since October 7th, what can Israelis, Palestinians, and the international community do to keep this attack uh, as a relatively isolated incident rather than as a harbinger of things to come in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is going to remain tense and on the brink, just as the West Bank is, which is you know beyond our the scope of our examination. It is also the case until the war is over, because uh, the uh, scenes from Gaza, uh, however you want to interpret them, are um, greatly disturbing and destabilizing for the Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And there will be those who will say, uh, we've, got to, we've got to get back and we have to retaliate. The question is, are you going to achieve stabilization by treating the Palestinians of East Jerusalem as if they were under martial law or by uh, strict and disciplined enforcement? There's something that I'm almost hesitant to articulate, but I think it is significant. The recent polls, and more than the polls, have indicated that the Palestinian citizens of Israel are displaying a greater degree of identification with uh, Israeli society and the state of Israel than at any point in the past. This is not merely on paper. There have been expressions of um, solidarity and and, and working together that we haven't seen in the past. Uh, It even went so far as Mansour Abbas, the Palestinian-Israeli member of Knesset, calling for the Palestinians to abandon armed struggle. On the other hand, the Palestinians in East Jerusalem have zero solidarity with Israel, do not identify with Israel. And as you can see, there's a continuum where some are taking up violence. Now, the Palestinians of Israel and the Palestinians of East Jerusalem are brothers or sisters or cousins at most. And it's an indication that Israeli democracy has displayed a success. It's displayed its maturity. And Israeli occupation of East Jerusalem has displayed and is continuing displayed its failure. I consider it to be extremely interesting. So if I can press you a little, what's the answer then? And occupation. If only it were so. The common perception, you know, the official Israel is uh, Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel that will never be redivided. And the Palestinians East Jerusalem have equal rights. And then, no. East Jerusalem is occupied. We didn't need this war to prove it. But the contrast between the success story of Israel and the failure of Israel occupation is very evident in ways that we haven't been able to see until now. Jerusalem will become a sustainable city um, only when occupation ends. A house divided against itself cannot stand half occupied and half free. And until such time as East Jerusalem is occupied, there will be cycles and they will be uh, secular. They will be repetitive and there will be times of calm and there will be times of violence and there will be times of tension and there will be times of significant bloodshed. And that will be the situation until there will be a political agreement which ends occupation in a way that is compatible with the interests of both Israelis and Palestinians. Nothing short of that is going to change the reality. You know, at a high level, I agree. But um, in the interim, until that agreement, um, which this government is not going to sign, 
you know, there, there are certainly actions we've described that aggravate the situation on top of um, the occupation, on, on top of the abnormal system of governance that, that permeates over the city. One of the troubling things from a Palestinian perspective is an imbalance between their perception of sensitivity to Israeli loss of life, especially civilian casualties, which is, of course, completely more than justified, and a greater insensitivity to the Palestinian loss of life in Gaza, where there have been tens of thousands of casualties, many of them innocent people. And the general sense is Israeli lives matter, Palestinian lives matter less, and sometimes matter not at all. When that is defining the relations between Israel and Gaza, it's a war. When it happens in East Jerusalem, it's heightened tension that breaks out into violence on occasion. It is clear that Palestinians are being subjected in East Jerusalem to different standards, different laws, different enforcement, and that from the eyes of official Israel, Israeli lives matter and Palestinian lives matter less. And that is something that exacerbates the conflict, inspires instability, and ultimately uh, spawns violence. Breaking through that perception is one important step uh, then along the way to the broader goal that you've articulated of a more comprehensive resolution to this conflict. Danny, thank you, as always, uh, for your time and your expertise in navigating these very complicated issues. Thank you. And stay well, stay safe. And you as well. And same to our listeners. And uh, for those listeners who would like to learn more about these topics or listen to previous episodes of this podcast, you can find that all on Terrestrial Jerusalem's website at t-j.org.il. That's t-j.org.il.